0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Pope Benedict XVI said, The world offers you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. We're going to explore just that in this episode as we read the story of the rich young man, which is a hinge story in the gospel, one of the big important turning points in the gospel. We'll even touch base with Ted Turner before it's done, so stick around for that. We're reading from the Gospel of Mark. This particular gospel is one of the ones that shows up in all three synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Luke, with slight variations, some of which we'll note. But we're going to go back to our old friend Mark to read the story of the rich man. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good?' No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Jesus tells a young man who he is in the gospel for this Sunday. And who is the young man? Like I say, he's called to greatness, invited to be a chosen companion of Christ on earth, made to live forever in glory with the greatest people and angels of all time, in the eternal rest of heaven that follows the hard work of earth. What does the young man do? He walks away into obscurity, because he would rather just be comfortable now and not great later. Jesus is telling us the same thing and asking each of us, how will you answer? Everything Jesus says to the rich young man is a lesson in personal identity. This is a key story, like I said, in the gospel. Bishop Barron, following the Anglican bishop and author N.T. Wright, calls it a hinge story. I've personally been riveted by this story ever since I read St. John Paul II's words on it in a used book I got about his addresses to youth. He used it as the introductory gospel also for his encyclical on the moral life, Veritatis Splendor. There, St. John Paul II said, quote, The question which the rich young man puts to Jesus of Nazareth is one which rises from the depths of his heart. It is an essential and unavoidable question for the life of every man. End quote. In fact, it was reading these words of St. John Paul II about this gospel that first launched my search for the answer why? Why is Jesus Christ the answer to every human life? So this is one of the good questions I mentioned before. This guy isn't saying, settle my dispute with my family. He's saying, who am I and what's the meaning of my life? The way he phrases it is that he wants to know what salvation takes, not in parables, but openly, as St. Bede puts it. This is a good instinct. While sick people were seeking healing for their bodies, this young man wanted healing of his soul, where he was as sick as they were. So he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rebukes him for calling him good. Why? Because he doesn't want flattery. He wants faith. The Holy Spirit placed this in the gospel because God wants every one of us to know, your flowery language doesn't impress me. I want your honesty. But Jesus also wants to be on the same page as the young man. Does the young man call him good as a courtesy? Or is he truly recognizing that Jesus Christ is indeed uniquely good? This is an implicit reference to the first commandments, the ones about God, says St. John Paul II. God owns the highest place in every person's life, or if he doesn't, your life is off the tracks. I like how this exchange goes in the Matthew version of the story. Right after saying only God is good, Jesus says, to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. This seems to take the young man off guard, because he answers, which? One way to think about this is that the rich young man, called a prince in Luke, is a sophisticated guy and comes up with and asks a question of Jesus that's a bit grandiose, what must I do to have eternal life, is indeed a great question, unless you just want to banter about it instead of facing it forthrightly. The young man may have been expecting a fascinating conversation. Instead, he got a blunt statement about the commandments, not a courtier's answer, but a kindergarten teacher's answer. The young man wasn't expecting that. The problem is we don't expect it either. We may have told ourselves that God will feel flattered that we are into him when so many people aren't, and we'll just shrug his shoulders and ratify the vision of ourselves we have. You may have had this experience with someone you love, You feel like you've been very loving because you gave them a nice compliment or gave them a nice gift, but they don't want flattery. They want you to fulfill your actual responsibilities. Jesus also wants from us not kind words, but the Ten Commandments. As he says in John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Everyone has to keep the commandments, no matter how smart, artistic, beautiful, eccentric, or altruistic you are. It's also worth noting the language that the rich young man uses. He talks about inheriting eternal life in this translation or having eternal life in Matthew's translation. In other words, he's interested in possessing eternal life. And this is a guy who very much identifies with his possessions. You could say that having the right thing is his paradigm. And what Jesus aims to do is blow up his paradigm so that he learns that being the kind of person Who could enter heaven is the right paradigm and i've got to share a story here because i think it's a great illustration of what the rich young man goes through what each of us goes through it's the flannery o'connor story the enduring chill it's a very suggestive story because it seems autobiographical the story is about a young man who left his home in the south to be a writer and then came back begrudgingly because he was sick much as flannery o'connor did in real life in the story the young man has an intellectually snobbish disregard for his mom and everything else in the south and in the story the young man grows increasingly ill and is pretty much confined to what he's convinced will be his deathbed in the past he met a jesuit priest at the university who appealed to him because he seemed to have a sophisticated and complicated view of life and a sophisticated and complicated view of salvation. So to irritate his mother and to speak to another intellectual, the young man asks for a Jesuit priest to be sent for. A Jesuit priest does come, but he is totally unlike the sophisticated, complicated university priest. Instead, he's like one of those old Jesuits that you used to still meet who are simple and uncomplicatedly devoted to the gospel. He's also half deaf and half blind, and he brushes past the young man's erudite references and Pronounces him ignorant because he doesn't know his catechism and doesn't pray. The priest demands, How do you expect to meet God face to face when you've never spoken to him? How do you expect to get what you don't ask for? God does not send the Holy Ghost to those who don't ask for him. Ask him to send the Holy Ghost. Do you want your soul to suffer eternal damnation? Do you want to be deprived of God for all eternity? Do you want to suffer the most terrible pain, greater than fire, the pain of loss? Do you want to suffer the pain of loss for all eternity? How can the Holy Ghost fill your soul up when it's full of trash? The Holy Ghost will not come until you see yourself as you are, a lazy, ignorant, conceited youth. And he pounds his fist on the sick man's bedside table. Well, in the story, the young man is startled and alarmed and deeply changed by this outburst from this priest who he at first considers a fool. Jesus seems to startle this young man in the same way because when he says, well, follow the commandments, the young man is taken off guard and at least in the Matthew version asks, which ones? Which is a really dumb question. We all know which ones, the 10 commandments, but Jesus answers him and gives him a selection. So it's important to look at the ones that Jesus selects. Jesus lists, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Earlier in Mark, Jesus has told the Pharisees that evil comes from within, and he mentions much the same list of commandments, including murder, fornication, licentiousness, theft, slander, deceit, as well as honoring father and mother. He said these sins issue from an impure heart and defile. Remember, you shall not kill includes, for Jesus, not calling people fools. Adultery includes all the sexual sins, as we discussed before. You shall not steal or defraud, as we have seen. For Christians, includes serving those in need, rather than just enjoying our goods for ourselves. Last, he lists honor your father and mother, which I think we can safely say includes love and care for your whole family. So, put them together, and Jesus is painting a picture of a life of love. Love toward neighbor, respect for their purity in your own, and a life dedicated to serving others, rather than towards self-care only. The rich young man says he has fulfilled all these commandments, and Jesus, looking on him, loved him, says the gospel, because he saw a pure, undefiled heart in front of him. It's important to note that the rich young man didn't earn Christ's love? Jesus is God and man outside of time and space. He knew the man from the inside out. He already knew the faults and failures that the gospel is about to reveal. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, no creature is concealed from him, but everyone is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. But Jesus does appreciate that by following these commandments, this man has been in a relationship with him. In our analogy about a friend giving up his house to be taken care of, that friend will indeed love us if we treat his house with care and respect and follow the instructions he gave us. He will see the way we treat his instructions in his house is a sign of love that we feel for him. Well, this man has followed the commandments, so he has been in a relationship with Jesus. At any rate, Jesus looks at him and loves him. In fact, love so much defines this story That when Jesus says, you are lacking only one thing, it is more love that he means. And not the warm feeling of love, but real love, the kind that defines his life decisions. Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. That kind of love. This is exactly the instructions Jesus gives when he sums up the Ten Commandments. Follow me means you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And sell what you have and give to the poor means you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is asking the rich young man to imitate what he himself did. Jesus is the ultimate rich young man with all the riches of divinity who nonetheless did not account divinity something to be grasped at but gave it all away to follow the Father's will and thereby found the greatest glory of any man in history. In the same way, what we give away and lavish on others is what we own in the end. What we grasp onto in place of God will own us in the end. Notice that Jesus promises not just the eternal life the man was looking for. Jesus also tries to appeal to him where he is at by adding that he will get treasure in heaven. That's a nice gesture, indicating the very thing this man most loves. But the man refuses the offer. His face fell and he walked away from Jesus Christ himself because he had many possessions. Imagine what he would have gained if he had more love. He wouldn't be known as the rich young man. He would have been known, perhaps, as an apostle. He would have been celebrated. People would take pilgrimages to his tomb. You probably would have met people who were named after him. Instead, the rich young man trades all of that for whatever comforts and pleasures Palestine had to offer 2,000 years ago. And now, no one knows his name. He is known not for who he is and for what he did, but for who he refused to be and what he would not do. Known not for his devotion to Jesus, but his devotion to his possessions. He could have been a hero. Instead, he is a zero. Years ago, I read a story about the multi-billionaire Ted Turner. He's the founder of cable TV channels TNT and TBS and CNN. He's a former owner of the Atlanta Braves and other professional teams, including World Championship Wrestling. I was fascinated by a story about how Ted Turner, early in his life, rewrote the Ten Commandments because he thought they were outmoded rules. His ten voluntary initiatives included... I love and respect planet Earth and all living things thereon. I promise to have no more than two children or no more than my nation suggests. And I support the United Nations in its efforts to collectively improve the conditions of the planet. He followed those all his life with gusto. Well, except for the children one. I think he had five children. Anyway, I became fascinated by him when I read that and read an article about him when he was 74 that made him kind of an extreme version of the rich young man, maybe the rich old man? I hope he's better now that he's even older, but at the time, he told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, Look at my accomplishments. I mean, I won the America's Cup. I won the World Series. I think I won over 1,200 prizes. I have 46 honorary degrees, end quote. And here is how the article described him at the time. He was, quote, "...ensconced in a vast, windowless basement at the UN for a conference on women and children's health, Turner appears isolated in the very locus of his passion, even with his colleagues at his side." End quote. His divorce from Jane Fonda a decade earlier, quotes, "...shook him profoundly, and perhaps contributed to the sense one has of his being emotionally adrift, no matter how vast his accomplishments. He has replaced Fonda with a new arrangement, alternating among four girlfriends, each of whom gets approximately a week per month of his time, The reporter asked him, are you lonely? Turner paused and said, yes, he was. Anyway, whether we're a Palestinian prince or a billionaire like Ted Turner or just a Westerner in a time of plenty, we need to beware of what possessions do to us. If we maximize our personal pleasures and comforts, spending our money and time on ourselves, we miss our calling and waste our lives. But we have a really hard time believing that about ourselves because we human beings are dreamers. Like Ted Turner, we're always wanting to be a better version of ourselves, one we gain by our own power on our own terms, our own voluntary initiatives. And more than that, we're good at convincing ourselves that we have captured our dream Look at our accomplishments. Look at our lives. Don't look at the fact that we're lonely. At our level, we think we've made a big impression on people, and then we're surprised that they don't really remember us. We imagine that our job is the, is the linchpin on which our company's future turns until we leave, and the company seems to do just fine without us, maybe better in certain ways. The same thing happens in the spiritual life. But Jesus insists that we give up the dream and see who we are in reality. We are probably pretty sure we can run up to Jesus any point and be high-fived. We think of our relationship with Jesus kind of the way the rich young man does. The young man says he has fulfilled the commandments Jesus lists. Well, so have I. I'm not a murderer or an adulterer or a thief or a liar or a swindler. I haven't dishonored my parents, I don't think. But then Jesus calls our bluff. He tells us what he told the rich young man. You are lacking one thing. Go, sell what you have. Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. He tells us, give up your hobby and serve instead. Give up some of your sleep, or give up your free time, or give up your addiction. This is when the real us emerges, The truth is, our dream of being Jesus's special friend and doing whatever is necessary has been pushed away far too often by another dream. We're constantly thinking of what kind of person we could be that's better than who we are now. Usually though, we think of being the kind of person who is more attractive, more important, more with it than others. But the more we follow that kind of dream about ourselves, the more possessions we amass, the further we are from being Jesus's special friend. Jesus doesn't actually want the dream you. He's seeking out the real you, stripped of possessions, be they material or only masks in your mind, so that he can bring the real you to be with him for eternity. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, says Jesus. As a proof that the rich young man is just like us, the apostles react strongly to Jesus. If people like us can't get to heaven, then who can be saved? they ask. For human beings, it is impossible, says Jesus, but not for God. All things are possible for God. How does God make this possible? By disillusioning us, bursting the ego bubble that we have built. When the rich young man faced Jesus on the road, he was facing him for the first time. We shouldn't make that mistake. The time we will meet Jesus face to face, the way this young man did, will probably be when we die, and that would be a terrible time to discover that we have built up layers of self-deception? We can have the life-giving encounter with God ahead of time through prayer, sacraments, and scripture. And when we do, we have to come as ourselves and go deep. Like I said, Hebrews says, No creature is concealed from him. Everyone is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. We need to kill off the dream, us, sooner rather than later, The dream will die when we die, and all that will be left is who we really are. You can see how disillusioned you are by your response to, go sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Some people respond well. And when we do, we have to come to ourselves and go deep. Like I said, Hebrews says, no creature is concealed from him, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. Jesus here says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he adds, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've heard the hot take on this gospel that says that this is really a reference to a narrow gate that a camel couldn't get through unless its packages were taken off of it. Commentators blow a gasket over that since it seems that this isn't true at all. It's some kind of centuries-long urban tale. There was no such gate, and it's unclear where people got that idea. One old commentary I have makes a point of saying, this means exactly what it says. A camel can't fit through a small sewing implement. Jesus wanted to make a deep impression with his words, and it worked for millennia, but started working with his own apostles because, the disciples were amazed at his words. I always feel like I have to be very specific here, at the risk of being a scold, because many, if not most of us here in America, are as rich or richer than the rich young man was. Hate to be the one to break it to you. We certainly have more creature comforts than he did. We have many possessions. We live in a land of single family homes with central cooling and heating and multiple cars. We are a nation that loves to shop and eat out and dress in fashion. Many of us are religious like him. We know the rules and we follow them. We reject the culture of death and the destructive ideologies of secularism, but we need to be careful. We live in comfort, and Jesus is speaking to us here. But do not despair. Jesus looks at us and loves us, just as the gospel said he did for the rich young man. And he asks us to give up what we have and follow him. As St. Bede points out, there is a great difference between having riches and loving them, End quote. Jesus doesn't say how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but he does say how hard it is. In fact, we've seen many examples in the gospel of people who heard those words of Jesus, go sell what you have and come follow me, and said yes, they found it compelling. In fact, says the gospel, Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in return. In Matthew, he also adds, Truly I say to you, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is actually literally true, I think, that consecrated people and priests get incredible amounts of stuff. I was recently with a priest friend at an event, and it was incredible to watch him connect with people. Everyone regarded him as a father, a brother, a family member. And I love that Jesus even adds some of the material goods here. As St. Bede says, you can have them, you just can't love them. I love to point out to my children the stately, impressive buildings priests and religious live in. And I tell my kids that Jesus promised that. You get incredible homes and land. Obviously, many priests and religious live in smaller, more modest quarters. But the only people I know who live essentially in castles are priests and religious. But they got that way not by seeking comfort, but by seeking God. As Pope Benedict XVI put it, The world offers you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. The rich young man sought comfort and walked away into oblivion. How about us? What will we be known for? What we gave up for love? Or what we clung to so tightly that we held it more dear than God himself? If we let go of the petty pleasures and comfortable ways that keep us from doing God's will, we will be like giants on earth. We will gather with angels at Mass. We will be lavished with heavenly treasures, the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we will play an integral role in salvation history simply by doing small things with God's love. What does that mean? Does that mean that Tom Hoops can be great? If I look at what I personally have, I have to admit that I'm not even the wisest, best-looking, most accomplished, smartest, or most talented person on 3rd Street in Atchison, Kansas, let alone great in the world. If I give it all to God, I am subtly united with the wisdom of the ages and part of the greatest story ever told, a player far beyond my neighborhood, a force to be reckoned with in the cosmos as part of Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.